please be seated. It is good to see all of you here this day as we come to begin a new series on the fruit of the Spirit. I invite you please to turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, picking up at verse 22. And I'll read to verse 26 in your hearing. Galatians chapter 5 at verse 22. Here is Paul writes this inspired letter to the various churches of Galatia. As he says in chapter one of this book, he writes the following and says, Galatians chapter five at verse 22, we read the words which say, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25. If we live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another envying one another well beloved brethren let's once again pray and ask the lord's blessings upon our time let's pray together our great and glorious God, we are so thankful that we could be gathered here this day to worship you in the beauty of holiness. So thankful, O oh God, that holiness has been imputed to our account through Christ the Holy One. So grateful, Lord, that because of Jesus we are accepted in your sight. And Father, as we come this day to worship you and to hear now from your word, we're asking, O oh God, that you would give us help from on high. We pray, O oh God, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us afresh. That we might know his help and his power, his anointing and animation. O oh God, we pray, even as Pastor Jack said earlier, that you would not leave us to ourselves, but come and rend the heavens. And give your servant clarity and your people listening ears. Oh God, we need your help. And as we come to this new topic at hand, we're asking for grace, asking, oh God, that you would teach us much, that you would challenge us and conform us more and more into that glorious moral image of Jesus Christ, our lovely, and living Lord, we do ask and pray all of these things in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Now the book of Galatians may very well be called the great manifesto of Christian freedom. This is the case and this is because it shows us that people are completely justified in the sight of God freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus' finished work alone, and this absolutely separate from all of their works and effort. In fact, the truths of this book, which were buried for thousands of years under Roman Catholic legalism, came to life once again through the Protestant Reformation and its teachings utterly transformed the lives of individuals, showing us quite plainly in the language of Galatians 2 and verse 16 that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the initial uncovering of this glorious gospel truth was brought forth through the teaching of Martin Luther who not only wrote an outstanding a exceptional an exceptional an outstanding and an exceptional commentary on this letter 
but also said that this epistle was, quote, his epistle, for he said that he had betrothed himself to it. Now, concerning this letter itself in the outset of our considerations, you should note a couple things about it briefly. And the first is, as I mentioned a moment ago, that unlike other letters which Paul wrote, this letter was not written to one particular church. Rather, it was written to several churches in the region or the area of Galatia. Now, there is a debate among scholars as to whether these churches were in northern or southern Galatia, but really, whatever the case was, I agree with theologian Tom Schreiner when he says that while identifying the recipients of this letter is important, it's not crucial for the interpretation of this letter since the meaning of the letter does not change dramatically whether we opt for a North or South Galatian hypothesis. Well, besides this, dear ones here this day, you should also note that the churches to whom Paul wrote this letter were churches that he had planted during one of his missionary journeys, and he wrote to them with the specific purpose of offsetting the influence of false teachers who were teaching that in order for Gentiles to be saved, along with believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, they must also keep the Jewish Mosaic law. This was the case, so that simply stated, these false teachers, who were commonly known as the Judaizers, viewed salvation as a combination of faith in Christ along with doing various works in order to be made right with God, saying, for example, that for one to be saved, they had to be circumcised in the flesh according to the custom of Moses, or, as one writer says, quote, to these Judaizers, to become a Christian, a person must not only place their trust in Christ, but he must also keep the rites and the rituals of the Jewish ceremonial law. And so church, long story short, these Judaizers taught a Christ plus something else plan of salvation which of course was a damnable plan of salvation since it absolutely distorts the true biblical gospel of God's free grace toward us which is found in Jesus Christ alone. Well, upon hearing this false, this heretical, a man-made gospel which at its core denied the central biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the Apostle Paul was up in arms. Paul was beside himself, and this is because he saw this false gospel by these Judaizers as a direct attack on the true biblical saving message of God. Now, of course, of course, Paul's classic statement in this regard is found in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, and I ask you please to turn with me there in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, here as Paul speaks against this matter quite plainly, he writes the following and says, Galatians 1 at verse 6, Paul says, I marvel. Literally, I am struck out. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert, that is to say distort and twist the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that, than what we preached rather to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, again Paul says, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. Now, having said these things, we might wonder how all of it connects to the whole matter of the fruit of the Spirit as the Apostle Paul speaks of it again back in Galatians chapter 5. Well, if you and I were to outline this entire epistle, we would be helped in answering this question, for in doing this, we would see that in chapters 1 and 2 of this book, we have the gospel of God's grace defended, the gospel of God's grace defended. Second, we would see in chapters 3 and 4 of this book, we have the gospel of God's grace explained. And then thirdly, in chapters 5 and 6 of this book, we have the gospel of God's grace applied. Now, it is in this last section concerning the gospel of God's grace applied where the Apostle Paul now takes up the subject of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the case, and as he does this, specifically in the second half of Galatians chapter 5, uh, he now begins to deal with ethical matters in the churches with reference to God-honoring practical Christian living among the saints. And so you ask, Pastor Ventura, what's the point simply stated? Well, the point is, in Galatians chapter 5, having already spoken of the freedom that you and I as Christians have in the gospel, which is to say freedom from all self-effort to be made right with God, and freedom from the curse and condemnation of the law, Paul's point here is that none of this, underscore it, none of this equals freedom for us to live sinfully so as to do what we please in contradiction to God's holy word. Well, church, simply stated the point is, and listen carefully, true gospel freedom is not a license to live in spiritual anarchy, no, but rather it's a call to live in obedience to Christ according to his word, and it expresses itself in loving service toward the brethren in the church of Christ. In fact, in light of the freedom that the Galatians had in the gospel, the Apostle Paul exhorts them, calling them to live spirit-led lives, and this so that they would care for one another and treat one another with true Christian love. Now, Paul speaks specifically about this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, and I ask you please to turn with me there in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, picking up at verse 13. Here Paul writes, saying, Galatians 5 at verse 13, as we get to the essence of why Paul spoke of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 at verse 13, he says, For you, that is, you Galatians, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been called to freedom. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity or an occasion for the flesh. But that is to say, or rather, through love serve one another. You see it there in your Bibles. Don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. Why? Well, he tells us, for the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Here it is again. You shall love, underscore it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware. Be on guard, Paul says, lest you be consumed by one another. Well, having said this, Paul goes on next in this section of Scripture to give the biblical remedy, the biblical answer for how it is that you and I who are Christians can defeat, can overcome such negative things in our lives. 
This is the case, and he does this by what he says next in verse 16 of this chapter, when he writes, saying, look at the words with me there in your Bibles. Here he says, not by way of a suggestion, no, but by way of a command, saying, Galatians 5 and verse 16, what's the remedy, Paul, to all that negativity just spoken of in the church? Here it is. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, or... The evil things which still remain in every Christian, even those things which he has just spoken of. Now, the Apostle will go on to speak more about this whole matter of the Spirit, which is to say the Holy Spirit of God throughout this entire section of Scripture. This is what he will do, and this is because, listen, it's only by virtue of you and I having the indwelling Holy Spirit that we will ever be able to live lives which are pleasing to God. This is Paul's remedy. This is Paul's answer for uh, backbiting and people being consumed in the church by sin, etc. Oh, church, please hear me when I say that this is the crucial key to the whole matter. I say then, walk in the Spirit. And it's because it's only by the Holy Spirit himself that you and I can live as God would have us to live in this place, lest again, as the Apostle says in verse 15 of this chapter, we wickedly bite, devour, and destroy one another. Well, this church is what this portion of God's word in this letter is all about with reference to the Holy Spirit, and it's absolutely vital, it's crucial that you and I understand this so that our lives will be all that they should be as the people of God. And so because this is what I desire for all of us in this church, this is why we are taking up our subject at hand. This is why we're going to consider it together for the next several weeks, and as we do, my prayer is that this material will be useful for all of us. Now, before I begin the exegesis of this section of Scripture, this new section in view for our considerations concerning the topic of the fruit of the Spirit, you and I must step back for a bit today in order to get a broad overview of our subject at hand. Before we begin to see uh, the whole, before we begin rather, we must see the whole forest. Uh, before we begin to look at each individual tree and this so that we can understand our subject correctly. And so, as we begin to do this for this morning, I ask you please to notice with me first the what of the fruit of the Spirit or what its definition is all about. Now, as we begin here, I want to give you just some short definitions of the fruit of the Spirit and say first that this matter can be defined as the character qualities of godliness that belong to a new life in Christ. You see it there in your bulletins. I had Bob put that in there so that you wouldn't have to be writing so quickly. Firstly, the fruit of the Spirit. What is it about? Well, simply stated, the fruit of the Spirit is about the character qualities of godliness that belong to a new life in Christ. Now that's a pretty good definition, I think. Or we can say, secondly, that the fruit of the Spirit is the character traits, attitudes, and attributes of the true child of God, which are called forth from the Word of God and are required to be expressed toward one another in the church. That's a bit fuller definition. Now, uh, having given you these pocket definitions, let me give you a lengthier one that I made up so that we can say that the fruit of the Spirit is, quote, the outward visible and godly virtues which are displayed in a true Christian's life by virtue of his spiritual union with Jesus which is produced by the inward, invisible Holy Spirit who is given at conversion. A bit more fuller. Now, I like this more robust third definition. 
of the fruit of the Spirit. And this is because it covers many of the things that you and I will be considering over the next several weeks in this series. Now, if you have been listening carefully, then you've heard me call our topic the fruit singular of the Spirit and not the fruits plural of the Spirit. Just as Paul speaks of this matter, uh, specifically in verse 22 of this chapter. Now, we might think uh, that it's better to call this topic the fruits plural of the Spirit, uh, since, in fact, there are uh, nine individual fruits here of which Paul speaks. However, uh, this is not what he does. This is not what he calls it. And so, why is this the case? Well, as Paul here seems to be contrasting the evil works plural of the flesh as he speaks of them in verse 19 of this chapter, he seems here to be speaking about the fruit singular of the Spirit in contrast to this, and this as a collective singular, which shows that there is great harmony in all of these virtues which he will list. Here, as one writer correctly says, quote, the apostle is not thinking exclusively of nine separate jewels with reference to the fruit of the Spirit, no, but rather he's speaking about nine separate facets or sides of it on the one single shimmering diamond which all belong to the one Holy Spirit. And so church, Simply stated, here the Apostle views the fruit of the Spirit as one whole cluster of fruit. One whole cluster of fruit. He views it as a, as a, as a cluster, one whole cluster of fruit instead of nine individual pieces. Showing us that while there are, in fact, nine individual pieces to it, they all go together. And this is because they are, all are to be present in every single Christian since they are an integrated whole. And so, having seen firstly for this morning the what of the fruit of the Spirit, come with me now secondly to note the why of it. The why of it. Now, under this next heading, I want us to look at this matter stated firstly positively and then secondly negatively. And so firstly, positively speaking, according to the Bible, why is it that you and I, who are the true people of God, should bear the fruit of the Spirit, or again, the character traits, attitudes, and attributes of the true child of God, which are called forth from the Word of God and are required to be expressed toward one another in the church? Well, uh, brethren, the answer to the question is simple. And it's stated plainly by our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15 and verse 8 when he said there that by this, Jesus said, by this, this specifically, my Father is glorified. How, Jesus? Well, he said, my Father is glorified by this that we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. How is the Father glorified? What does the Word of God tell us in this regard? What does Jesus Christ, the living Word, tell us? Well, he tells us in John 15 that by this my Father is glorified. How? He says that we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And so you see, dear ones, according to Jesus, bearing biblical godly fruit is that which greatly glorifies our God, thus we must do this. Bearing fruit is that which causes others to be blessed by us, and it also helps them to see the attributes in us which are connected to God himself, and when they do see this, our God is greatly honored. Ah, but having said this, secondly, now negatively speaking, you and I who name the name of the Lord are to bear the fruit of the Spirit because bearing fruit is one of the clearest ways 
that we demonstrate that we, in fact, are the Lord's true people. Okay? Why do we do this? We do it to honor our great God, and then secondly, because by bearing biblical God-honoring fruit, in this we set forth one of the clearest reasons, clearest ways, whereby we demonstrate that we in fact are the Lord's true people. Now our Lord Jesus Christ made this fact abundantly plain in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, when he spoke against false professors of faith, and I ask you to please turn with me there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 7, picking up in verse 15. Matthew 7 at verse 15. Here in this section of scripture, which is labeled in my Bible, you will know them by their fruits. Jesus says, picking up at verse 15, Matthew 7 at verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Notice what Jesus says. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's the application. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, this passage here in Matthew's Gospel really acts as a catch-all for why it is that we who claim to be the true people of God are to bear good and godly fruit. Indeed, by the grace of God, this is what is to be true for all of us. Consequently, this is why Paul could say, for example, in Colossians 1 and verse 10, that he prayed for the Colossians and, of course, for all other Christians after them, praying that we would, quote, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being what? Well, he said, being fruitful, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, here then, is this matter stated positively and then negatively? And concerning this negative part with reference to it proving or demonstrating that we in fact are the people of God or not, it was A.W. Pink who rightly said that bearing fruit is, quote, one of the great distinguishing marks of the regenerate. One of the great distinguishing marks of the true people of God. Ping said there are multitudes, listen, not a few, but multitudes of unregenerate religionists who are well-versed in the letter of the scripture, but their knowledge came only from human media, parents, Sunday school teachers, or their personal Bible reading, etc. Ping says there are tens of thousands of graceless professors who possess an intellectual knowledge of spiritual things which is considerable, sound, and clear, and yet they are not divinely taught, as is evident from the absence of the fruits which ever accompany the same. Well, dear ones here this day, those are very sobering words. Very serious words. Words which you and I need to take heed of this day. These are serious matters, to be sure. And they're true. Even as Pink said, there are tens of thousands of graceless, or we might say fruitless, professors. And therefore I say in agreement with him that this must be a real warning for all of us in this place here this day. Now, brothers and sisters, dear ones here, under the sound of my voice, 
I say may it be that each of us, in view of what Pink said and the Bible teaches plainly, that each of us will examine ourselves in this regard so that we will see if we are truly saved, fruit-bearing individuals, since according to the word of God, if there are no biblical fruits coming forth from us, it's because there is no saving root in us. No biblical fruits coming forth from us. Why? Answer, no saving root in us. Now, of course, it's true that real Christians won't always bear all the fruit of the Spirit in the same measure and all at once know, for just as the case is with natural fruit, so also spiritual fruit takes time to develop. Ah, but brethren, having said this, in due season all true Christians most surely will do this. In due season they will be fresh and flourishing even to old age. Just as the Bible says they will be in Psalm 92. And so, having seen so far the what and the why of the fruit of the Spirit, come with me thirdly now to note the how of it. Now, as we address this final matter for today, we must realize that there are some tensions here as this whole matter of bearing good fruit as Christians is directly connected to the topic of our sanctification. Now, of course, as I trust each and every one of you know, when it comes to our sanctification, or that of us being made more and more holy, it's not just that we let go and let God do all the work in us without us doing anything, no, but rather, according to Philippians chapter 2, it's that we are to work out what God works in us. And so you see, church, there is a real tension here, especially when it comes to this matter of the fruit of the Spirit, so that when it comes to the question, is it God who produces this fruit in our lives through our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit alone, or do we just cultivate this fruit ourselves? Dear ones, the answer is it's not either or no, but rather it's both and. And so you see, while for example, rather, the fruit of love towards others which is to come forth from us, is absolutely a byproduct of the Holy Spirit in us, uh, just as Paul says back in Galatians chapter 5, this does not at all negate the fact that you and I as believers have a biblical duty to love others just as the Bible commands us in many places, and if we fall short in this regard, then we are to work on this with the help and grace of God. And so you see, as in all things biblical, as in all things scriptural pertaining to the Christian life, there is a mysterious and glorious interconnection between God's work in our lives and our responsibility to obey Him. This is the case so that in summary, we can say that while the fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, that which is produced in us by the Holy Spirit through our vine union with Christ, for as Jesus says in John chapter 15, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, yet at the same time, beloved, there is to be a diligence in us in obeying God concerning the cultivating of the various fruits of the Spirit in obedience to His Word. Now, of course, as a side note here, this God regarding the cultivating of the various fruits of the Spirit in our lives, which are to come from us, is not something that we do with some humanistic performance checklist so as to make ourselves good enough for God, no, for this is completely impossible. Rather, it's that which you and I are to do in complete dependence upon God. And this because we have been saved by His free grace, which is found 
in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, having highlighted the aforementioned matters, what then would a life look like that does both of these things? Well, one writer tells us when he says that it would look like, quote, full trust and sincere reliance on God's work in our lives, while at the same time not neglecting our own responsibility to act in our sanctification. Here the writer says that, quote, while indeed it is the power of the Holy Spirit that the sanctification process is done. However, he says, at the same time, we will not be a passive robot in all of this. And so you see, beloved, whereas in the salvation process, we absolutely do not work with God at all in it, for salvation is of the Lord. Ah, but having said this, in the process of sanctification, you and I do work with God, and this is because He wants us to cooperate with Him so that ultimately we could be made more and more like His glorious Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Now concerning Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord, as I just mentioned Him, and in connection to our whole subject at hand, I must say, beloved, that you and I must always keep our eyes on him, especially when we find ourselves falling short of all that God would have us to be as his people. Now, why do I say this? Well, I do so because God has always been after one who would bear fruit for him perfectly throughout the entirety of his life. Ah, but church, having said this, as you know, you and I constantly fall short in this regard. I mean, even Adam of old, our first federal head, failed miserably in this regard, and then Israel after him failed in this as well. Ah, but having said this, beloved, it's striking to note that in speaking about Jesus hundreds of years before he came into the world, Isaiah the prophet prophesied concerning him, saying in chapter 11 of his book that, quote, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall, quote, bear fruit. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. And so having said this, the point is, you and I as Christians must always remember that in all of our failures to have lush, perfect fruit all the time before the Almighty God, ultimately, our Lord Jesus Christ has already borne that perfect fruit for us on our behalf, and in this we could be glad. In this we can rejoice while at the same time, always remembering to keep our eyes on him in all things. And why? Well, it's because Jesus will help us to produce the various fruits of the Spirit in our lives. For as he says again in John chapter 15, that without him we could do nothing in this regard. Which means that with him we can do all things blessed be his name now having said this again there is a, a flip side to this whole matter concerning the fruit of the spirit with reference to what we are to do in our lives and here i want to mention five things briefly in this regard from the human standpoint five things in order to help us to be fruit-bearing, God-honoring Christians. And the first is, you and I are to pray to God regarding this matter. We are to pray to God regarding this matter. Oh Lord, I'm not bearing the fruit of love and faithfulness and goodness as much as I should. Oh God, I'm not doing this. Not bearing joy and peace. I'm not being long-suffering and full of kindness. We pray firstly to God. We ask him to help us in this regard, knowing that according to James chapter 4 and verse 2, we have not because we ask not. Secondly, 
We are to be taught the Word of God in the church. Since being taught the Word of God enables us to grow and to bear biblical, proper fruit to the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. Third, we do this by fellowshipping with God's people at the church. I want to be more fruitful. I want to be more like my Savior. We fellowship with God's people at the church. And this is because God's people can have a positive, powerful impact upon us, helping us to grow in our faith and to bear good fruit. For as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is. Fourth, we do this by delighting in the Word of God. How do I become more fruitful in my life? How do you become more fruitful as a Christian in this place? By delighting in the Word of God. For as we're told in Psalm 1, we read it in the outset, the blessed man is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And in that law he does meditate day and night. Consequently, the writer says, he shall be like a tree, she shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields, quote, its fruit in its season. And then fifthly, in this regard, you and I do this by trusting in the Lord our God in all things. How do we become more fruitful? How do we bear these fruits that we're going to consider one at a time over the next several weeks? By trusting in the Lord our God in all things, for as Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Why? Well, he tells us, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from, quote, yielding fruit. Well, here then is where we end our first overview of our topic at hand for today and the next several weeks concerning the fruit of the Spirit. This is what I wanted us to consider for today. Again, before we look at the individual trees in the forest, just look at the whole forest, broadly speaking. And so as I begin to wind down, I want to apply some of what we have considered together by speaking firstly to those of you here this day who are the true people of God. To you who are genuine, born-again Christians, what does what we considered today say to you? Well, there are two main things that I want to say. And the first is, like the Galatian churches, you must be sure that you know the true biblical gospel, lest you be led astray. And then second, like the Galatian churches, you must be sure that you take our topic of bearing the fruit of the Spirit very seriously, and this so that you are regularly bearing God-honoring fruit, toward each one in this place, lest you become an agent of great harm in our midst. So two applications, two things. Number one, like the Galatian churches, you here this day, my dear brother, my dear sister, must know the true biblical gospel, lest you be led astray. Multiple times throughout this wonderful letter, Paul mentions the words, the gospel, over and over again. And as we saw again in chapter 1, Paul says, I marvel, I'm, I'm stunned, Paul says, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. There it is, which is not a gospel at all. And so the point is, if we're going to take this book seriously and understand an underlining major thought to the whole thing, you and I must be sure that we know the biblical gospel, lest we be led astray. Again, Paul writes here to the church as, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church as, plural, of Galatia. 
Multiple churches in a particular area, whether north or south, whatever the case was. But hoodwinkers had come into the churches and they were leading the congregation astray. And brethren, I say with all the false gospels which are all around us, Roman Catholicism, Judaism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnessism, etc., you and I need to be on guard. This is not some a fairy tale letter. This is not some made up issue that happened, but it was a real issue that happened. And so we must be sure, you must be sure, that you understand the true biblical gospel, the true biblical good news, that Christ in love came into the world, sinners to save, and that 2,000 years ago he actually paid their penalty in full on the cross. That he fully propitiated his father by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that all who repent of their sins and trust in his accomplished work will be forgiven. Nothing is to be added to his finished work. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is done, it is finished, it stands accomplished. It's not Jesus' death on my behalf, plus be circumcised, plus be baptized, plus join the church, plus do penance. No, it's Christ alone as the only ground of our acceptance with the Holy God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And yet there are many, even in our own day, who want to distort the gospel. The gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. They want to add to the simple gospel message. They want to distort it, twist it. And so dear ones here this day, you must be sure, I must be sure, that I know the gospel, that you know the gospel. Because there are many deceivers, even in our day, who would seek to lead us astray. And so may God help us. May God help us in this regard. May we take again this key thought in this book and press it upon our own consciences and ask ourselves, are we committed to the biblical gospel? Can we say with Luther of old, here we stand, so help us God. But secondly then, dear brothers, dear sisters here this day, like the Galatian churches, you and I must be sure that this whole subject of bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that it's something that we take very seriously. And this so that we are regularly bearing God-honoring fruit toward each one in this place. For those are the ones to whom the fruit is to be born. Lest we become agents of great harm in our own church. The language Paul uses. Biting and devouring and consuming one another. You say, was that really going on in the churches? Yes, it was. It was. And if you are in touch with other churches and other places, you know that sadly, these are the things that go on at times. And so you and I must not just sit here under this series and be like, okay, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., etc., thinking that it has no real implication for your life, my friend, it does. Because if you are not someone who is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, then you will be an agent of great harm to our congregation. Do you want to be known as the agent of great harm to our church? I don't want to be known for that. I want to be known as the agent of great good. 
an agent who was very helpful and gracious and kind. But the byproduct of not obeying our passage and taking it seriously is that there might be some or even one in our midst who discards the word of God, doesn't obey the command to walk in the spirit, and winds up bringing forth bad fruit in his or her life. And I hope that this is not the case with any of us here this day. I pray that as we see any bad fruit coming forth from us toward the brethren, lack of love, lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of long-suffering, lack of kindness, lack of goodness, lack of faithfulness, lack of gentleness, lack of self-control, that we will repent of it and say, Oh God, that's not the kind of fruit you want coming forth from me. I own it. I ask you to forgive me. And I ask those who I've sinned against to forgive me if I've lacked this fruit. And I pray God to help me to bear the fruit that glorifies your name. And so brethren, challenge yourself, yourselves with this. Am I going to be an agent of ill for our church or an agent of blessing? May God help each of us here this day. And so, what about for you here this afternoon? You who are not true Christians, to you who have not been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, what can I say to you? Well, simply what the Apostle Paul says back in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, and I ask you please to look with me there in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, picking up at verse 19. Notice what Paul says, Galatians 5 at verse 19. To verse 21, Paul says, Now the works or the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, Paul says anything else along those lines, if I forgot, put it in the list. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, what? that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There it is. There it is. And it's a list like this which was helpful in my own life, a similar one in 1 Corinthians, where Paul lists all of these sins, drunkenness and fornication and idolatry. And he says those who practice such things will not go to heaven. And when I read that as a non-Christian, I said, I'm not going to heaven based on the word of God. And if you're not a true Christian here this day, guess what? Neither are you. Because your life is characterized by a life of rebellion to God. A life of envy, drunkenness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, hatred, contentions, uncleanness, lewdness, etc., Paul says, I tell you now, even as I've told you before, that those who are practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so take this as a real warning, my dear non-Christian friend here this day. You may think, oh, all is well with me. Little sin here, little sin there, no big deal. My friend, it is a big deal. And again, as I said earlier with reference to myself, what a shocker it was. To see that the word of God says that I wasn't going to heaven. Wow. I used to think I was good enough to go to heaven until I read the Bible. I found out that I was undone and I was on my way to hell. That's the bad news of the Bible. But it's the true news that we need to begin with first. We're lost. You're lost. 
you're on your way to hell, my dear non-Christian friend. It's terrible news. It's the worst news in all the world. But the good news of the Bible is that even though this is the case, God in love sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. Wicked sinners, gross sinners, immoral sinners, murderers, drunkards, unclean people, fornicators, adulterers, etc. God did not shy away from seeking the lost, no, but he sent his son to save these types of people. And how does Jesus save these types of people? Well, he lives a life that they should have lived but didn't. That is to say, a perfect life before God. And then he dies the death that they deserve to die. That is to say, Jesus died in the place of guilty sinners. He lived a sinless life. But when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, the Father imputed to his own Son the sins of sinners. And the Father treated Jesus as if he was the greatest sinner in all the world. And he punished him in the place of the guilty. And Jesus offered his sinless life as an atonement for sinners. To what end? So that every sinner who turns from their sins and trusts in his finished work as sin-bearing substitute could be forgiven of all their sins and be made right with God in an instant. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out saying, it is done, which means he fully propitiated, absorbed all of God's wrath in the place of the guilty once for all time. That's what he did at the cross. Paid in full to the Father. For who? For all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus' person as Son of God and work as the sin-bearing substitute alone as their only ground of acceptance with God. And so might it be that this day, for some of you here this day, who are not true Christians, as you look at that passage in Galatians chapter 5 and see that it has you in it, that you will quickly turn from your sins and repentance and say, oh God, forgive me for the life I've lived. I've sinned before your face with a high hand. Oh God, forgive me for my sins. And I run to Christ by faith and I receive him as my own Lord and Savior. Might it be that some here this day or those listening to my voice online will put all their faith, trust, and hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are feeling freshly convicted this day of our fruitlessness at times, of our waywardness at times. But we are thankful, O oh great God, Lord Jesus Christ, that as we abide in you, which is to say remain close to you, in a realized communion that you will help us to be fruit-bearing people. To bear lush fruit all of our days for the glory of God the Father. And we pray, O oh God, that as we consider our subject, you would help us. That we would consider ourselves and rejoice in the good things that we see that you are doing in our lives producing God-honoring fruit. And yet at the same time, we will repent where we fall short of this and ask you for fresh grace and help for the days ahead. Oh God, come then we pray. 
and work all of these things deep within our hearts and get all the glory and praise to your great name. We ask all of these things in that wonderful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.